This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It's the 11th of February, 2010, and today I'm joined on the line by Jerome Revetz, an environmental consultant and an associate fellow at the Institute for Science, Innovation, and Society at the University of Oxford. He's the author of several books, including A No-Nonsense Guide to Science and the co-developer with Silvio Funtovich of the concept of post-normal science. Uh, Mr. Revetz, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to talk. Well, Mr. Revitz, I wanted to have you on the program today because you recently posted a, a fascinating essay called Climate Gate, Plausibility in the Blogosphere in the Postnormal Age, which I have taken the liberty of posting in its entirety on climategate.tv. And as I say, I find this to be a fascinating essay because it's one of the few analyses that I've seen emerge from the entire Climate Gate affair that is specifically looking at the issue and climate science in general from the viewpoint of the philosophy of science. And it takes a, a look at what this incident tells us about the way science is being conducted in, in a policy-driven environment and how it might be more usefully conducted. And this is a topic of incredible scope, so it's difficult to know where to begin discussing something like this. But I suppose for listeners out there who may not have a background in the philosophy, philosophy of science, perhaps we should start our discussion of post-normal science by first discussing the work of Thomas Kuhn and his concept of normal science. Yes. Uh, I think go back uh, a wee bit before then, because up to now, uh, when philosophers have talked about science, they've always had in mind uh, what scientists are doing in the lab relatively isolated from external influences and effects. And so scientists were seen as searching after truth, uh, using uh, scientific method uh, one way or another, and it was always assumed that when the scientists had done their thing, then the results would be available to society, uh, in what I've sometimes called a fountain of facts. So the scientists would then deposit their results, and the uh, medics or the engineers uh, would then pick them up and apply them to human benefit. So... Um, that was the traditional philosophy of science, uh, which suited the way people wanted to understand science for a very long time. When we come to, let's say, the last century, middle of the last century, there were two very important developments. Uh, one was that even within science, the traditional assumption that science gave us perfect truth uh, couldn't be sustained because of all the revolutions in physics, mainly in the early 20th century. Uh, Einstein had shown that, in a way, Newton was wrong, and that we had new things happening which we'd never imagined, like turning matter into energy. And so people had to find a new basis for the, the value of science. And the key player in this was Karl Popper, who found it in the morality of scientific work and the fact that scientists are always ready to take criticism and change their views. Uh, and that was the basis of what he called the open society. Then Thomas Kuhn came along a bit later, and he was, uh, he actually, how should I put it, he was a very brilliant, very profound thinking person, found himself quite excited by science and understanding science, did a PhD at Harvard, which is a great place, in experimental physics, and found that science wasn't all that exciting. 
And in fact, uh, as he finally worked out his ideas, he said that uh, what he calls normal science uh, is just puzzle solving, where you don't ask what it's all about, you're not really interested in criticism, but you're given a well-defined task and you solve that task. Now, as he shaped it all up in his seminal work, Scientific Knowledge and so, uh, sorry, oh, that was mine, uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, uh, he made normal science to be not at all exciting, not at all adventurous, not even particularly, what should we say, uplifting. But that was his experience of science in the post-war period when it was changing from being a vocation of a very few people who really had to make great sacrifices to follow a career into becoming a career where, you know, you get your grant, you do your PhD, you get a job, and you carry on. So Kuhn reflected the growth of science into a new, if we might call, uh, disenchanted period of big science. Now, uh, Clearly, it wasn't the whole story, and there are, have been, still are, many scientists who really love it, who are excited at finding new things and helping humanity, who are very self-critical uh, about their own work. And so now the practice of science and the understanding of science is very, very varied. There are some who still believe in that they're finding truth, some who are just solving puzzles, some who are in a great noble intellectual adventure. So they're all there. Okay. Right. And and as you point out in your work, the, the, the Kuhnian model of normal science really comes from his, his background in, in experimental physics and the That's classical right. laboratory science where theories can be posited and then directly tested. But when we have these complex systems of multivariate interactions in a dynamic yep. system like the climate, scientists have to yep. rely on modeling in order to understand what's happening. So is yep. this moving away from lab certainty to model uncertainty one of the defining features of post-normal science? Uh, I think you put it extremely well, yeah. Where, and I think if you look at the, some of the critics of, of, of what I've written here, there are some people who still find this very hard to hold on to, uh, that uh, we simply don't have the hard facts uh, to determine what we should do. And, you know, you can have model uncertainties, you can have simply inadequate data, um, you can have contested in, you know, theories. And so the idea that we will, you know, get those researchers out there, they will find the facts, they'll tell us what to do. It works to some extent, sometimes more, sometimes less. And uh, this is where Sylvia Fontovich and I uh, got this idea of a new sets of problems and new sorts of practice. Well, tell us about that concept and how you came to develop it. Yeah. Well, we had already been working on the management of uncertainty in scientific, scientific information. Uh, this is a problem that we came upon independently, and then when we first got together in the early 80s, we realized or we decided that uh, for the most scientists, the management of uncertainty was not very not done very well at all. 
uh, and uh, how should I put it, in the classic experimental sciences, people thought, well, if you just put on the error bars, then, you know, that's enough. And we found also that in the more complex sciences, sometimes people didn't even know about error bars. Uh, and I think a lot of social science, and economics, even some environmental science, people simply didn't understand what uncertainty is and how it has to be managed. And even now, you'll find you know, many influential people saying, well, the task for science is to reduce uncertainty and then we will really know, when in fact uncertainty can frequently not be reduced. So we developed a system for characterizing uncertainty. Uh, and as I said in my essay, this is now the practice of uh, knowledge quality assessment that our colleagues in Holland are doing. Now, as we were shaping that up, we came to see the problem was more general than just you know, the uncertainty in results. And so we saw from what was going around in environmental science that you have to have a new practice which relates to these new sorts of problems where the science is not definitive. So we tried to think of a name for it. it took about five years of trying different names before we settled on post-normal science. And the key to the idea is, uh, in fact, the way we made it understandable was to imagine you know, there's this old, safe, puzzle-solving, we called it applied science, which is routine and which I have to say is the overwhelming majority of the work that is done. In other words, in our civilization, we depend on routine research and monitoring and testing to keep the whole show going. If we didn't have that, it would fall apart. In other words, by and large, our technological machine works extremely well because so much of it can be done in can be built and maintained in a normal science way. So I should say I never joined in with those sociologists who were attacking all of science and saying it was nothing but negotiation or whatever, because we always knew that there is this overwhelming mass of problems which require solid, old-fashioned science for their management, okay? But then we went and we saw a link to uh, what we call professional consultancy. Uh, and that came actually from my awareness that uh, surgeons get paid a lot more than researchers. And you say, well, why? And one answer is because they kill people. Uh, that a researcher can make mistakes and it only wastes a bit of resources or whatever, whereas if you are a surgeon or a senior engineer, you are out there where it is less certain and where also you can do a lot of harm. And so your true professional has a need for a more, uh, what should we say, for more wisdom in his work and also certain moral qualities. And so then we saw there's uh, that, and, and, and that person will use science, but use it in the context of his judgments or her judgments. So that was the link through to these new sorts of problems where 
either the value commitments are very intense or the factual basis is very insecure. And then we say, well, what sorts of people need to be involved in that? And that's where we made this fairly bold statement that we need an extended peer community. Uh, in other words, in principle, anyone who is affected by uh, a science policy issue has a right and, in a sense, a duty and a responsibility to join in. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we take opinion polls on what, on you know, how to do research. Uh, we live in a real world. But what we have seen by practice is that when you get a community involved, they can become quite competent on particular aspects of the whole problem. And I think, as I said in the article, even the definition of the problem is a partly political act. I mean, in that little book you quoted, I mentioned road safety. I mean, we're all for road safety, but do we mean for people who are inside cars? Or do we mean people who are on walking? Do we mean cyclists? And in every case, the risk problem is different. And the issue, how the issue is defined, will determine what are the priorities for research, what are the problems being studied. I mean, just as if you're worried about people inside the cars, you will have safety belts and airbags. If you're worried about the people getting hit by the cars, you'll redesign the cars or have speed limits. So any practical problem involving society will have this political element and where the experts themselves cannot, uh, are not qualified or competent to define the problem in its totality. So that's why we speak of the extended peer community. And also we have found in the course of many, many debates uh, that you can dig quite deeply into the uh, definition of the problem, the techniques for research with people who build up their own expertise. And we've had this in medical studies. Uh, people can criticize the statistical methodology, all that sort of thing. And finally, uh, there's the question of who owns the, uh, the results and what happens to them. And again, this is partly property, it's partly politics. So I don't want to go on at too great length, but the point I want to make is that when you have science injected into policy, it becomes part of a policy process and is actually improved by being subjected to democratic processes where they're appropriate. Now, I know as well as you do that this can all be abused and that you can have political, populist, or corrupt politicians' pressures on distorting the scientific effort. We've seen plenty of this. My point is, this happens anyway, so let's understand it and do it right. Okay? So that is where we got to post-normal science. Enough. Right. So, so bringing this back specifically to, to climate science, then, um, for, in the essay, you talk about some of the in uncertainties that are involved in, in climate science and, and that yeah. are not uh, often dealt with explicitly by the scientists yeah. who are working in the field. And you gave an example, yeah. for example, the, uh, the forcing factor relating the increase in mean That's temperature right. to a doubling of CO2. What, what are yeah. some of the uh, examples of uncertainties that climate modelers and climate scientists deal with and, and, or fail to deal with? And how does that affect the science? 
Well, I'll take the forcing factor because uh, just now a friend sent to me a very critical review by Joe Rom, who I suppose is quite well known uh, on the other side. And he points out that people have really looked very hard at the forcing factor and indeed that the forcing factor could quite possibly be much higher than three, which would then lead to total catastrophe. And I totally agree with all that. He doesn't address my point that if you feed a number like 2.75 into a model and get certain results out, and these models typically, you know, it's parts per million as against uh, temperature rise. Those parts per million are usually quoted to the nearest five parts, like 285 or 350, something like that. Now, I'm really coming at this somewhat from the outside, and I may be proved wrong, but what I haven't seen is a study of the sensitivity of those models to the uncertainties in the forcing factor input. And uh, if you really say, well, here we have an input which can vary through a factor of three, maybe five, then what sort of uncertainties, what sort of error bars are appropriate in the output? Now, it may very well be that if that is put through, the outputs then become very uncertain uh, and then the people, the, if you wish, the I don't want to call them alarmists, but let's say the people who are very concerned will be able to say, wow, it is quite possible that, you know, we're going to be boiling or roasting. However, what we find now, and I think the Stern report shows this, is that there has been an attempt to give quite precise outputs uh, let's say, for the temperature rise, and of course then translate those into quite precise uh, economic policies. Now, uh, this all goes way back into what I was doing with Sylvia Funtovich 25 years ago, and I'm just saying that this is really not good science, that if you suppress the uncertainties, sooner or later someone's going to say your outputs are not reliable. So we, we can stick to that one at the moment. And, and the implication... And because, as I say, Joe Rahm really went to town on me, and he didn't address that issue. Well, the, the implication then is, is really that these uncertainties are, are either not being addressed or, or not being addressed fully because there is that, uh, that public policy motive dr driving the science itself. That's right. And, you know, as I think I say in the essay... The, the public and the politician want certainty, uh, want simple results, and the pressure on the scientists is to provide them. And, uh, and uh, as I say early in the essay, you know, you really have two different languages there. Uh, you have the language of cautious uh, science where you have all the uncertainties up front, and then you have the language of political decision where in the last resort, you must ride through the uncertainties, and it's very tempting to suppress them. And they, they're, they're different. And I mean, uh, I, you know, I was writing a very brief, carefully, well, they're not perfectly designed essay. Uh, in all sorts of policy domains, you will have this clash of cultures where uh, the scientists know the uncertainties, and the politicians and policymakers don't want to know them. And then you can have a mess, shall I say. 
And I think I made it pretty clear that uh, it's very difficult for a committed scientist to avoid becoming what Roger Pilke has called a stealth advocate. Very difficult indeed. Right, and you also used the term evangelical science in that paper. Yeah, ha-ha, yeah. That actually came from my colleague, uh, Angela Wilkinson, who, who, knew, who knew those people quite well. And that, again, is when you are convinced uh, that you're saving the world. You have the truth, and you have to tell the whole world. And then, of course, you tend to demonize the people who disagree. Um, and again, it's a very natural tendency. I mean, I have been involved in political campaigns myself, and I, I, know, I know the temptations. Well, then, if, if the answer to this type of insulation that happens in these uh, scientific communities is the extended peer community, can you talk yeah. about the, the ideal role for technology in facilitating new forms of interaction among scientists and, and even redefining traditional ideas of peer review? Yeah, I think uh, this is something which, uh, I mean... I took over my idea of this essay. I remember I started writing on it in December, reflecting on it. The essay has gone through at least three drafts. And as I worked on it, I came to see, for me, the real significance was, if you wish, the technology underlying the extended peer community. Because up to now, people who have been criticizing science didn't have a platform, didn't have a voice. Uh, and even, I mean, you can see it from the history of the climate change thing, where you've had all sorts of people making criticisms. Uh, and uh, as I say in the essay, they were in a sort of samistat culture. Uh, oh, they could write a book, which might even sell, but then it didn't have to be recognized by the scientists because it wasn't peer-reviewed. Or, you know, they could exchange uh, emails among themselves or whatever. Uh, but it's only when you got the blogs that people could actually form communities and learn from each other, criticize each other, get mutual support, know that they weren't alone, and get strength. Uh, then, of course, you had the counter-blogs, which meant a debate. And, of course, like all these debates, usually it's pretty nasty and pointless, uh, but punches get traded. And, uh, and so... If we compare that sort of thing to traditional science where, of course, there's always debate, but the debate goes on behind closed doors, usually, uh, or, well, let's say in professional conferences, uh, and then you'll have debates sometimes in the scientific journals. But in a way, you don't get a voice until someone gives you permission to have a lot of trees chopped down on your behalf. Right? In other words, you have to publish in a peer-reviewed journal and, uh, before anyone's going to listen to you. And uh, I think it, what was in an earlier draft, when I mentioned the printing thing, you know, up to the year 1500, if you wanted to get published, you had to have somebody kill a sheep for you uh, or a calf and somebody else sit there with a pen, you know, writing down your stuff letter by letter. And that was expensive. And so uh, few people wrote and not all that many read. Then along came printing, which has its own story. It's not relevant for now. And you had cheap printing. You had pamphlets. You had Bibles. 
So then you might have maybe 10, 20% of the people reading. And let's say in religion in particular, people could read the Bible and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is the life of Jesus. It doesn't bear much relation to the church that we have. And I think actually one of the things, again, it may have gone into an earlier draft, where uh, I happened to pick this up reading a book, that in 1543, uh, Parliament under Henry VIII uh, made it illegal to read the Bible, Bible unless you were of the gentry. In other words, the Bible was too dangerous for the common folk to read. Clearly, because all sorts of nasty people were reading the Bible and whipping up the common folk, saying that, uh, you know, Jesus never talked about bishops or confession or whatever. And so spreading subversion, uh, uh, upsetting society, and so the, the, the lesson was that you don't want irresponsible people to be reading the Bible but they couldn't stop it. And so you had the revolutions in religion, which of course then set up the modern world. And I suddenly thought, yeah, uh, now, you know, up to now, if you wanted to know what was going on in science, you either would read the literature and who had access to that, or read what the official publicizers were telling you in the official journals. Where was the critical voice? All tucked away inside. And then quite suddenly, as with the invention of printing, you have this uh, explosion of communication. And of course, it'll be very varied in quality, a lot of rubbish, all of us know all that. And then, and this is what made this current draft of the essay work, I suddenly said, at long last, the extended peer community, if you wish, the voice of the people, has a technological base. Well, that's that's very right, and I'm glad you bring up that an analogy because yeah. that historical analogy is one that has occurred to me as probably the closest fit to what we're living through right now with the dawn of the internet era, and I, yeah. I guess it, just in the way that the the dawn the birth of the printing press uh, gave rise to to Bibles that were not only uh, f uh, printed in in great quantities but also printed in the in the languages of the people rather than. Yeah. Rather yeah, than in Latin, you. exactly. So, so that that created a, a, not only literacy among the population, but also a greater understanding of the the actual issues, the actual texts that they were supposedly relying on, and of course that inevitably led to the Reformation. So, right. so I guess I'm assuming that that what we're seeing here is is the beginning of something similar in in a number of yeah. fields, but also of course in scientific fields. So, I guess the the the, the question then is. If if this process um, in you know 500 years ago led to a greater scientific uh, sorry a greater literacy uh, mm -hmm. in general terms, is what we're seeing right now likely to lead to a, an overall increase in scientific understanding? Given that this information will be more widely available and more widely seen and read than it would have been in, a, in other ages. Yeah, definitely. And of course, it's not merely, you know, these critics on the blogosphere, but even within science, you have much more openness and journals being published on the web, and you have uh, various ways. Uh, what's, there's a thing in Oxford called Galaxy Zoo, where amateurs are brought into doing the science. Uh, and so I'm finding it, I, I haven't really taken time off to make sense of it yet. But I, I fully agree uh, with you, that with this insight, uh, that the technology of information and knowledge 
you know, interacts with its social position. And we're now changing the social position of knowledge. Now, we also know that the Reformation itself was one great, was a huge mess. And society was very destabilized for at least 150 years. Uh, on the other hand, out of it came the modern world. And so I would be the very last to say, all we have to do is to have lots and lots of uh, blogs and then in science with the people and we're all happy. It will be a mess uh, and lots of mistakes will be made. However, just I mean, because after all, back then, religion governed the way people thought about themselves in the world. It may be hard for most people now to imagine it, especially people outside the States, um, but, you know, there is, it's, it's still there among, let's say, Catholic countries and in large parts of the States, less so in Europe, uh, where people, in whatever way, see themselves, you know, as relating to the afterlife, God, whatever, and then the institutions which govern that are very, very powerful. Now, in the secular world, as religion has retreated, science has taken over some of those functions. And of course, people have remarked, it can't do it all because science won't tell you why you're here. On the other hand, certainly as far as you know, legitimate knowledge, determining policy, all that sort of thing, science has those roles as the core ideology. And up to now, it has been uh, largely elitist, uh, but largely run by very good people with the best of motives. I mean, we're not criticizing here. But as science gets drawn deeper into the policy domain, the tasks of governance get more and more difficult. The possibilities of corruption get, and misuse get ever greater. And so now, in a way, the, um, how should I put it, the technology is solving the, sorts of the, the problems of science in the technological age. It's opening up science to more of the democratic process. And I think and we that's very exciting. It, it so, certainly is. Oh, please yeah, go I mean, ahead. In a funny way, I, so I see the, the, the climate gate thing, uh, you know, partly is very, very important in itself, but also as a very strong indicator of what's happening to science. I agree completely, and, and we see the, the, the real changes taking place now in, in the uh, societal discussion that's going on, and now there's serious discussion about changing the IPCC process itself and yep. its assessment reports and how they're compiled, and, and there's sure. all sorts of ideas that are being put on the table now that would have been yep. almost unthinkable even a few short months ago, so it certainly yep. has changed ultimately yep. the, the entire process, but I, yep. I guess the question is and how... I must say this one thing, though. Suppose those emails had not been stolen and the debate was still rumbling on. Would we know of how bad was the IPCC process? Would we know about these big debates within the science, the scientific community? The answer is no. You know, I mean, this is what we have to recognize. There are these people who were pointing out these egregious errors to the IPCC. And they were suppressed. These people didn't go to the media, did they? They just gritted their teeth. And so it took the scandal to open up the whole can of worms. And of course, anyone, I mean, Americans know this process quite well, that in a sense, uh, there's news that isn't fit to print 
until there's a scandal, and then it is fit to print, to quote the New York Times. Uh, and so the scandal has the function of changing the legitimacy of information, even though the scandal is always messy. Right, exactly. Well, then I guess the, the question is, how long can, can scientists that are still working in, in the old paradigm continue to insist that, that peer-reviewed literature is the only type of scientific opinion that can matter? Uh, I think, I, I can't say how long. I think you know, that will be depending on where they're at and the pressures and whatever. And of course, I'm sure there'll be some big tragedies there. And there are people who could not imagine what was wrong, still cannot admit that something is very wrong, cannot imagine how you could have good science when you know, the media and the mob come in. And, and they'll be very, very upset. You know, and uh, I mean, but one sees this all the time. But in a way, the processes of science being in involved in society have been going on for a long time. Uh, I mean, I mean, we had this myth of academic purity of science, which started in the late 19th century, and that concealed from everybody a great deal of social involvement in science. And, and now, you know, now that science is big, it's involved in industry, the military, whatever, uh, now we are actually forced to come to terms with this, and uh, it won't all be good. Hmm. What can I say? Absolutely. Well, well, I guess yeah. time will tell, and we'll see how this does time play out. It'll be different. I mean, as with the Reformation, it was a mess. It was a terrible mess, and terrible things were done on all sides. Uh, but in a way, gradually, as it sorted out, we did have a new way of looking at the world and managing it, exactly. uh, which I think, in a sense, which even transformed the Catholic Church as well as the Protestant churches. Right. Well, I, th so I, I think the the yeah. Oh, I think the democratization of knowledge can't be a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, not a bad thing, essentially, and, and, and all that. And, of course, up to now, we've had more and more education among more and more people. Uh, and as I, I think I say in the essay, uh, when you have a knowledge economy, and I think this is the other part of it, uh, where, at least in the high-tech industries, you know, you have an educated workforce. Uh, you have people who won't simply be pushed around by the boss. You have all the developments like um, open source, right? Where you begin to have a democratization of the whole production process and the governance of technology. Uh, so in a sense, what we're seeing here with this episode is all part of this broader movement. And uh, it all goes, again, with the way the technology of knowledge has developed, and it must bring with it its changes in the society of knowledge. Absolutely. Well, a fascinating... Agree. I I certainly do. I certainly do. And it is absolutely fascinating uh, conversation for me, because so many of these ideas that I've, I've been thinking of, but, but well, haven't great. articulated. So, um, But there's, there's, of course, much more to be said about this matter. And so people who are interested in, in post-normal science and looking more into this, how can they find out more about your work and the, the work of others in this field? Um... I've always been too busy to write the book about post-normal science. There's a Wikipedia entry, which, which is a starter. 
Uh, and I think there are a couple of classic papers which can be dug out on the net. And, I, you know, I really should sit down with Silvio and write that little book, but we haven't done it yet. Uh, but I think, again, I'm, I can go lazy because the sources are easily obtained. All right. And and do you have a website that you'd like to direct people to? Yeah, I have a personal website, which is slightly out of date as usual, uh, but that's Cherry Ravitz. I think it's cherryravitz.co.uk. All right, excellent. Well, Jerome Ravitz, again, a fascinating conversation and, yeah. and very important, I think, for our society to be having at this point in time. So yeah. um, I'd like to thank let, you for let, your Let essay. me just thank you for getting me back into the philosophy because I've been getting more and more involved in the debates over the details where, you know, my competence is limited and they were only there for an example. So it's good to be reminded that the philosophy part is really what it's all about. It certainly is. It's the absolute basis for our understanding of what's uh, actually happening in science right now. So thank you. absolutely. Good. Well, uh, thank you very much pleasure. for joining me today. My pleasure. And thanks so much for having me on. Okay. Bye-bye for now.